0: R.C. Sproul is a name you might recognize. He was a theologian, an author, and a teacher. And in the course of his education, he studied for a time in Holland. He lived 25 miles outside of Amsterdam in a small Dutch village. So every day that he went to school, he rode the train into the city, and then he walked from the station down the main street and across a bridge and into the downtown where the university was located at that time. Every day he crossed that river, he passed a beggar, seated on the side of the bridge with a little collection basket, and R.C. would regularly drop a few coins in that basket. Several years after completing his studies, he returned and he walked that familiar route to the university. Guess what? The beggar was still there, in the same spot, begging, and R.C. dropped in a few coins. On that trip, he purchased a big picture book of Amsterdam, and as he was going through the pages, he saw a photograph of that bridge, and guess what? In that photo was that beggar, sitting there with his hands out, begging for alms. He was a fixture. In that city, as was the lame beggar of Acts 3, who we are told was brought daily to beg beside the beautiful gate. And he had likely occupied that spot for most of his life, and really most of the lives of the passers by. A lot of people seem to know this beggar or at least know of him and so it is no wonder that when he is healed miraculously, the healing creates quite a stir. In the first 10 verses of Acts chapter three, Luke observes the miracle of this man's healing and in the remaining verses that we'll be looking at today, he records Peter's explanation. So in Acts chapter three, what we have is a miracle and then a message we have a sign and then we have a sermon father as we open your word we open our hearts we open our ears we open our minds we ask by the power of your spirit that you might apply this to our lives reveal the truth that is here help us to see it and more than to know it help us to obey it where we might we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we pick up our text this morning, the man who was lame from birth is perfectly healed, and he's clinging to his new friends. He's not clinging to them because he needs them to hold him up. He's not clinging to them because he's having any trouble standing whatsoever. Remember, he was pulled to his feet by Peter. Peter. And he began to walk and he began to leap and praise the Lord. But now we come to this portion of our text and he's clinging to his new friends, okay? The word means adhere himself. (laughs) He has adhered himself to these guys that just blessed him beyond measure after 40 years of suffering. He desires to remain with them is what it means. He wants to participate with them. He doesn't want to let them go. And they are in a place called Solomon's Portico which is a colonnade area on the east side of the temple. And the multitude of people who had been on their way to temple that day uh, had either heard of or some of them had personally seen this miracle. And so the whole place is just a Twitter. The whole place is just a buzz. The word has spread to the extent that the crowd is running to get their eyes on this man. Now, when I think of a crowd running, I, I can't help it right now, but the, the, the image that comes to my mind is of where a bunch of us fellows went to a gospel coalition uh, conference in Indianapolis at one point, And prior to the sessions, they would rope off the area that you were supposed to go and sit in. And uh, so people sort of had to stage behind that a little bit. And uh, depending on who the speaker was, would sort of decide how big the crowd was going to be staged behind these ropes, even in Christian circles. Say, well, that's pathetic. But we are pathetic from time to time. And the, the funny thing about this is that David Platt was on next, And if you've listened to David Platt, he's an incredibly motivating, uh, captivating speaker. He's a great author as well. So David Platt is up to speak. He's next in the queue. And Rob Morang was with us. And since Rob's not here today, I can talk about him. Um, (laughs) Rob loves David Platt. And Rob wanted to be on the front of the line. He didn't exactly get to the front of the line, but you know Rob's a pretty big fella. And... uh, He's a kind of, an, uh, yeah, he's a force to be reckoned with. Anyway, he got up there to the starting gate. And when the ropes are let go, I mean, I mean, the crowd starts running. It starts running. And there's Rob, and he's throwing old ladies out of the way. And he's running right over the backs of people, none of which, of course, he did. But the, the crowd did run to get the better seats. And you know me, I love a crowd. So... Uh, <laughs> I sat in the back and watched it on on a screen. I didn't have to fight with anybody for a position anyway. Something exciting is happening. It has garnered the attention of the crowd, and so they decide it's worth running to. The crowd is excited. They are curious. They are eager to see a miracle of healing has occurred in their very midst, and they really aren't sure how. And that's when Peter stands to clue them in, to educate them, and he says... Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? You see, when supernatural events occur, people want to know what or who to attribute the events to. Peter quickly and wisely testifies that it is neither human piety nor power. Um, that is responsible for this healing. What just happened was not by any man's ability, agency, knowledge, or mastery. Peter is quick to deflect any of the glory that the onlookers might have been likely to give to him. Paul David Tripp in his book Dangerous Calling cautions pastors against the ever-present danger of glory, and I think we could really extend this warning to all everyone who wants to minister for Jesus, for the kingdom in, in the name of Christ. I think this applies to us all. Uh, Tripp writes, Perhaps there is no more powerful, seductive, and deceitful temptation in ministry than self-glory. Should we begin to think of ourselves too highly, he warns, you'll constantly confuse being an ambassador with being a king. We are ambassadors of the king. Peter is an ambassador for Jesus. And it's important for the crowd to know this right away. Neither Peter nor John deserve to be worshipped for this miracle, and they don't want to be. Because the manifestations of God's miraculous power are not intended to result in the praise of men but in the glory of God alone. And it is to this end that Peter begins to preach. Verse 13, if you're following along, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. A couple of things happening here in this verse. Right away, Peter is sort of uh, uniting himself to his audience. These are his people, These are this is his countrymen, they, they, this is their God that he's talking about. We live in a culture now that wants to bifurcate, that wants to separate, that wants to polarize, that wants to say, well, if you think this and I think that, then we can't even talk about it anymore, right? That's what's happening. And yet Peter is saying, listen, we're talking about this God, you know this God that I'm going to talk to you about. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers... Okay? Same God, not a different God. He glorified his servant Jesus. That's how Peter describes Jesus, his servant, right? And that's probably, well, it's partly because Peter knew this to be true from his own experience. He'd spent all this time with Jesus. Years ago, we studied the book of Mark together, where Jesus says that whoever wants to be great must be a servant. If you want to be great in this world, you've got to be willing to serve. And of course, there's a key verse to Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, which I think some of you would remember, might even say it with me. For even the Son of Man came not to what? Be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So Peter knows that Jesus is a servant. And yet there is more to this description, which comes from the scripture that was read earlier from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, where Isaiah the prophet is looking ahead into the future and predicting the arrival of the Messiah, who will be, and some in that crowd would know this, who would be God's servant. Isaiah 52, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Isaiah 52, 53 is talking about Jesus. Not only God's servant, but a suffering servant. Isaiah 53, verse 11, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquity. So what Peter's doing right away, right out of the gate here, is making this about Jesus and tying him to the messianic predictions. This miracle, Peter says, is about Jesus. Why are you looking at us? This miracle is about the servant of God, Jesus, whom God sent. This miracle is about Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one. Another messianic appellation there. The the Messiah will be holy. The Messiah will be righteous. And Peter's saying you have rejected the one God promised to send who God did send. And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. Have you ever really messed up in your life? I mean, really, really messed up. Have you ever just chosen so badly that you, you completely blew it? Because that's what Peter is saying about his audience right now. You guys made a terrible, terrible choice. You had the Messiah in your midst, and you delivered him over to death. You denied him. That word is used here twice uh, in this indictment. It means to reject, to disavow, to repudiate. In other words, Peter says, you separated yourself as far as you could from Jesus You pushed for him to be crucified. It was a Roman cross, but it wasn't a Roman plot. Pilate would have released him. But you chose chose instead to demand the release of a murderer. You would rather have a murderer on your streets than the Messiah of God. You delivered him up to death. You denied him and you killed the author of life." You killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead, and to this we are witnesses. Now does that sermon sound familiar to you at all? We are, we're we not this deep into the book of Acts. We just came through Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and it was the same thing okay this is remarkably similar to that first sermon god sent his son into the world you killed him god raised him up and we're witnesses to his resurrection is that the only sermon peter knows (laughs) is that the only sermon some people really do only know one sermon they've got one sermon they carry around with them they preach it all the time I know I've shared this story with you before, but I think it's kind of of a cute one, and it does sort of fit in here. There was a church who called a pastor at one point. They were excited about their new pastor after searching for a long time. They thought he was going to be just the right man for them, and he came into the pulpit, and that first Sunday he delivered a whopper, a beautiful sermon. People loved it. They were excited about it. They talked about it. Oh, my goodness. He was eloquent. The material was so well organized. That was a fantastic sermon. This is just what we need. This is just what we're looking for. Oh, everybody was so happy. Next Sunday comes along. Pastor steps into the pulpit. He preaches a sermon. It happens to be the exact same sermon he preached the week before. Some people, I'm sure, didn't even recognize. But some... We're thinking, well, that sounds familiar. It was good. I mean, it was really good. The material was well organized, and he was eloquent. He presented it nicely. Kind of strange, but that's okay. That's all right. Who knows? Maybe nervous jitters. Comes week three. Pastor steps in behind the pulpit. He gives his sermon. Exact same sermon that he'd given the two weeks prior. Now there's a problem. Maybe maybe something weird going on maybe this isn't our guy. The leaders of the church, some in the pastor, and they said, Pastor, we've got to ask you a question. We want to make an observation and ask you a question. We've noticed that you've preached a fine sermon, but that you've preached it three weeks in a row. And we're just wondering, is this the only sermon you know? And he said, no, I have plenty of plenty of sermons. Well, if you've got plenty of sermons, how come you preach preached the same one three weeks in a row? He says, well, a uh, I'm gonna preach those other sermons after you do something with the first one I preach. Can you imagine that? Okay, beloved, I'm gonna preach on forgiveness until you forgive, right? I'm gonna preach on holiness until you're holy. Oh my goodness. Because preachers preach, you know, not just to be heard or noticed, not just to inform, And God forbid not to appease or tickle ears. Preachers preach for change. Preachers preach for transformation. So a proper sermon will hopefully instruct you, yes, and and prayerfully it will enlighten you on something, but it is not given simply to increase the hearer's knowledge. Not just to make you smarter or necessarily more biblically informed it is given in the hopes that the word of god will lead to transformation that the word of god that you hear will will pierce your heart by the power of the spirit and it will require you to respond you almost won't be able to help it it will it will motivate you to action preachers preach for change and peter is preaching for change This is not the only sermon he knows. But it is most definitely the sermon, get this, this is a sermon he's been told to preach. If you have your Bible handy and you want to turn to Luke 24, we're going to go there for just a second. Luke 24, the last chapter of Luke's gospel. And the context here at the end of Luke 24, picking it up around verse 45, the context here is this is a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, right? To his disciples, where he is explaining events to them. That's what's going on, Luke 24, verse 45. This follows the, uh, the story of Jesus revealing himself in all of Scripture to the men on the road at Emmaus. Um, and now he's with his disciples. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, And said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So Peter is not at a loss for something else to preach to the Jewish crowds. He is actually staying on script, which is awesome for Peter when you think of it knowing him as you do. He is staying on script. He is preaching the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he is preaching its implications for his hearers, which is to say that Peter is preaching what? He's preaching the good news. He's preaching the gospel. That is what he is doing. He's sharing the message that every Every gospel believer can share the message every non-believer must hear. He's preaching the gospel. Now, his his, uh, boldness here is notable. And we might wonder if we would be so bold. Would we be this bold in our witness if we are given this opportunity? Because I think sometimes we Christians are intimidated by this idea of sharing our faith. Well, we are confused maybe a little bit about what evangelism really is. When we think of witnessing, we believe that we should be telling our story of conversion to Christ. And, and frankly, some, some don't share their story because they don't find it to be exciting enough. Like the turnaround wasn't radical enough. Well, I never was an addict. I never went to prison. I never... Did anything egregious? Didn't rob a bank? I never did any of these things. So when Jesus saved me, it really wasn't a big leap. Well, of course it was. I mean, I know that, right? And you know that. But we, we're worried. Well, what if my story is boring? What if, what if I tell my story about how I came to Jesus and people look at me and they shrug their shoulders? Really? Is that it? It's not our story, is it, that we're to tell? I mean, we can work that in, and that's fine. How has Jesus changed your life? What has Jesus done to to conform you to his image? How have you changed in your pursuit of Christ? We all ought to be able to talk about those sorts of things. But the bottom line is this. When you're called upon to witness, you're not called upon to witness your story, bear witness to your story. You are called to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? That's what evangelism is. Evangelism is is to present a specific message, that is the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus, to a specific people, lost men and women, children. In the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be as eloquent, articulate, uh, salient, uh, lovely a speaker as you wish. If the Spirit's not with you, it's for naught with a specific purpose, which is to get people to repent and believe and be saved to God's glory. That's what evangelism is, and that's exactly what we are called to do in the process of making disciples. And this is exactly what Peter is doing on Solomon's portico. Now let me make this a little bit more practical, and then we'll move on, because all of that really wasn't in here. Um, How will you introduce Jesus into the conversations you're having with unbelievers? Let's just start there. If we are to preach the gospel, we must be talking about Jesus. So just think about that, if you would. Let me plant that seed to say, how can I get this conversation around to Jesus? We'll talk about the weather. We'll talk about that awesome restaurant we just went to. Talk about the Patriots all day long. How will I get it around to Jesus? Because you see how fast Peter has done this twice, right? Chapter 2, chapter 3, he doesn't waste any time. This is all about Jesus. So he shifts the spotlight for this miracle away from himself and his friend John, and he ties it squarely to the Christ. Verse 16, in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. If you want to know how this man came to walk, Peter says, after being crippled all these years, he was healed by the faith that is through Jesus. Jesus filled Peter and John with faith that he wanted this man to be healed, which is to say to that audience, the one you rejected, the one you crucified, is risen and is alive and is still doing miracles. Verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. They acted in ignorance. Peter concedes that. Ignorance, though, of what? If you look down to verse 22 and following, you find at least a partial answer. Ignorance of their own scriptures. Moses predicted this, Peter says. Samuel spoke of it. All the prophets who came after him proclaimed these days. But you missed it. You didn't know it. You didn't pay attention to it. You're ignorant. In the kindest sense of the word, they're ignorant. They just don't, they don't, they don't know. And yet we know that this is true, don't we? That ignorance is no excuse. People are still going to be responsible to God for how they live, how they behave, how they choose, regardless of what they do or do not know or recognize about the plans of God that are unfolding right in front of them, okay? People are still going to be held responsible. These, these guys might have been ignorant, but they're also still guilty, as all of us are guilty in the death of Jesus. Because all of us contribute to the sin that he paid for on the cross. The immediate audience that Peter was addressing contained individuals who'd literally been there when Jesus was killed. At least that's very likely. So his rebuke would have been pretty sharp to them. They would have received it that way, I'm sure. But all of humanity is culpable for Calvary. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sin of the world. All of us. The crowd didn't grasp what was taking place in the events that led to Jesus' death, so Peter states it plainly, verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. See, beloved, what you're seeing now is simply the fulfillment of the scriptures of which you are ignorant. And even though you are ignorant, you are still guilty. And Peter wants them to feel the weight of that guilt. Peter wants them to feel the weight of what it means to rebel against God. How different is that than the world in which we live? Well, we are pretty much told that we shouldn't feel bad about much of anything. Go do your thing. Be true to yourself. If it bothers someone else, that's their problem. God is out of the equation. How different is this? Where Peter wants his audience to understand, look what you have done to Jesus. And feel it. And don't hurry through it. Dwell on it for a little bit. This is serious business. This sermon is a plea for P- Peter's fellow countrymen to recognize what they have done as they rejected the Messiah of God. And then and then to do what? The sermon takes a turn, beautifully it takes a turn. What is one to do when she realizes? What is one to do when he realizes? She or he has been wrong all along. What do you do when you figure that out? What do you do when you you come to believe and understand? Finally, I have acted sinfully. I have been disobedient. I have not honored God with the life that he gave me. Verse 19, the answer. Repent therefore and turn back. Which is as simple as saying it this way, friend, if you're on the wrong road for crying out loud, turn around. That's what it is. If you're on the wrong road, turn around. Repentance is to turn. I had the great privilege, and I mean this, this past week of of going to Baptist Youth Camp, Schmunchkin Camp. I do not qualify for Schmunchkin Camp, but thank God I have two grandsons who do. And so we spent a couple days at Baptist Youth Camp, and uh, it was awesome, it was great. And one of those option periods where you kind of get to choose what you want to do, I took my grandson, Blair, and we went for a walk because he likes to explore. He likes to to be in a, he's an adventurer. And uh, his other cousin likes to be busy in different ways. So Liz and I have successfully employed the divide and conquer strategy <laughs> for a while. I took Blair, we went to the woods. Now this axe trail is um, named after the model of prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Gives you opportunities to pause at different times by the lake if you so desire sit and, and say a prayer of adoration to God, a prayer of confession to god a prayer of thanks to god a prayer to ask for your needs to be met and it just winds along the the edge of the water which is perfect for a young man who's not really interested in the axe model but just wants to play and so i would walk and blair would go off on one side or another and i would keep walking and eventually he would find out that i wasn't with him and he'd run down the trail and catch up and he'd go somewhere else all the same thing I hadn't been deep down this trail in my life. I knew it was there, and I've walked that property many times, but not on this particular trail now that it's actually a trail. It turns upward, and there's good signs there, but something about six-year-olds, they don't necessarily always read the signs, (laughs) and so I I started up the trail, which I know is going to just loop me back into the field at Baptist Youth Camp. And the reason I know that is it says BYC. And so Blair says to me, where, is this, where does this go? I said, well, I'm not exactly sure. Now, that's not a fib. I, I, didn't, I knew it was going to come around, but I didn't know where. I am not sure. Well, have you been on this trail before? Um, no. And he said, I'm going back. <laughs> Seriously! Come on, dude. Your grandfather's here. What could go wrong, you know? I have a flare gun if we get lost. No. I'm going back. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's just give it a few minutes, okay? Let's keep going down this trail. And if we see something familiar in the next five minutes, we're good. And if we don't, we can turn back. Are you comfortable with that? Yeah, okay. But anyway, what I got off of that was that's pretty insightful for a six-year-old to all of a sudden go, I don't know where I am. And I don't know if I'm on the right trail. But I know where I came from. (laughs) I'm going to go get back on the right trail. Repentance is really turning and going back. or turning and going in a different direction. Some of you have been Christians for a long time, and yet you've wandered away from the faith. And the Lord would say to you, repent and come back. Some of you have never turned your life around, never given your life to Jesus Christ, and you're just going in, in, in a direction that you choose or the path that you want, and yet you're starting to feel, maybe I'm not on the right trail. Turn around. i got to ask you this morning, are you walking the path of godliness in this life? Are you traveling? Do you know for sure that you're traveling in God's way? And if you're not, then the Bible's advice here is to repent, which means have a change of heart that leads to a change of direction. And I ask you, if you think, well, maybe that should apply to me today, what would keep you from doing it? William Mason has said, if we put off repentance another day, we have a day more to repent of and a day less to repent in. D.L. Moody sharpens the point, saying if God's today be too soon for thy repentance. Thy tomorrow may be too late for God's acceptance. If you are convicted that you are going in the wrong direction in relationship to God, if you are sensing a need to change in your life, do not delay. Because God is willing to forgive. Whatever transgressions you have committed, God is willing to wipe away your sin. In his devotional, Donald McKim notes this, that God is more willing to forgive than we are to confess. I read that, you know, the devotional is called uh, Coffee with Calvin. Yeah, anybody wants coffee with John Calvin? It's a Donald McKim devotional. But I read that and I thought, ouch, God is more willing to forgive than we are to confess. Yet when we are willing to confess, to turn from wrong, John Vianney writes, God will pardon a repentant sinner more quickly than a mother would snatch her child out of the fire. That's how fast God will snatch you, if you will confess and if you will turn to him. Repent and turn back, Peter tells the crowd. And then he tells them why they should, that your sins may be blotted out. And that word uh, translated blotted, it means wiped away. So Tony Morita wrote a commentary on Acts, and he brings this passage into our day by asking the reader to envision his or her sins all listed on a dry erase board. So all your transgressions, your iniquities, your failings, your shortcomings, listed on a dry erase board. That's a big board, isn't it, brother? Big board, sister. Now imagine, he says, sitting there pondering the weight of your sin record. The certainty of coming judgment without having any hope of changing your sad reality. But then, when you feel eaten by shame and fear, someone marches in and forever wipes that record of your wrongs off that board and declares you innocent. This is what it means to turn to God, to put one's trust in Jesus. On the cross, he wiped out our wrongs. We have no guilt before God. There is no condemnation coming our way. Well, there's lots more I plan to say prayerfully next week. I'll get to it, but this seems like a good place for us to end. Let's sing a couple of songs.